Uh, ready? Time for some action. Um, <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Uri and alongside me is the fabulous Biffa Sturt. Hi Andy. Lovely. And today we are joined by Grace Blakely. Have Hello. I right? You have, yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Grace is an economics and politics commentator, columnist, journalist, and author. She is a writer for the Tribune, a panelist on Talk TV, and was previously the economics commentator of the New Statesman. Very good. Well, that's not a bad list. Uh, so, how are we doing, Grace? Welcome to the podcast. I am all good. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. No problem. Um, so, we always start with a very simple question, which is, uh, what's keeping you up at night, Grace? God, what isn't keeping me up at night at the moment? I mean, I've just come back from quite a long holiday, so I feel like I've kind of stepped away from all of the chaos and had a bit of a relax. But I think there's just the perennial worry of you can't really escape it of just what's happened happening to the climate. I mean, there's news every day, I think, um, from various different parts of the world, just of very strange and unprecedented weather events and things getting a lot warmer and all that sort of stuff. So I think that is in the back of my mind, this kind of urgent thing that's always, you know, always there, really. And I think it is for a lot of people of my generation, actually, and younger. Is there anything that will make people do anything about it? It's hard, really, because, you know, I think a big problem with the way we talk about climate change is it all comes down to kind of individual actions and individual mm. responsibilities. And that, that's actually a narrative that the big fossil fuel companies worked to push. You know, they were, BP created the idea of the, the carbon footprint to say, oh, please don't regulate us. Just make sure people, you know, buy tote bags and don't use plastic straws and all that sort of stuff. Whereas actually, you know, if we really want to tackle climate change, you've got to just change the whole structure of the economy, how we generate electricity, how we get around, how we produce things. So it requires like a really big structural shift in the way that the economy works, basically, rather than just people trying to be nice and... So the Green New Deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the Green New Deal? It actually came out of the UK. Oh, did so, it? Yeah, it, the initial okay. version of it came out after the financial crisis, which was this whole idea from, you know, a bunch of economists and politicians got together and said, we need a, a stimulus package post crisis that's going to actually solve these climate problems. Then it went over to the US where it was picked up by the squad, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, etc. And then kind of came back here. But now it's been it's been kind of squashed, I think, in, in the Labour manifesto, unfortunately. It's basically all your kind of power should be renewable green. Like you should stop the fuck with coal mines and getting oil out of the North Sea and all that stuff yeah. should be, we should be planning to get rid of it. Yeah. And it's also things like, you know, retrofitting housing stock so that it's much more environmentally friendly, you know, investing in different forms of transportation, like renewable energy, all that Electric sort of stuff. Electric cars. Yeah. I mean, if you take the house one, having having looked at it recently, you know, it's 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 a chicken and an egg situation. You know, I, I went to an expert on it and, and I mean, they immediately started telling me, they were just sort of, you know, warning me how much it was going to cost us. Well, you're going to like put insulation in your house or something. You've got, you've got to use the um, uh, heat exchanger, but then you've got to actually completely rebuild your house because it only works if you've got underfloor heating with piping, which is you know major. So I mean, he you know, a quick examination suggested it might cost sixty to hundred thousand pounds to sort my house out, which was more than we were going to spend on an extension. Yeah, you know? I mean, this obviously would have to be something that. Would, you'd be supported by the government. And the whole idea of it as part of this stimulus package, which is what the Green New Deal is supposed to be about, is that, you know, this is classic Keynesian economics, is that you are investing in infrastructure that's going to last for a long time and support, you know, sustainability as well as growth. And you're creating jobs now in the context in, in which they're needed. It's a little bit more challenging to suggest now, given that we've got these high levels of inflation. The whole idea was to do it immediately after 
at first the financial crisis, then the pandemic when the economy needed a bit of a boost. Arguably, it still does now, but you have got these inflationary pressures, some of which, by the way, do come from the problems associated with climate change. It's becoming increasingly difficult for us to feed ourselves in the environment in which we've created. And that's why a big part of why food prices have gone up so much, actually. So yeah, it is a bit of a chicken and egg problem in the sense that we need to spend money in order to fix some of these problems. Otherwise, everything's going to get more expensive. Is it part of an issue that we've got a government where a lot of the government is both insulated from the problems that a lot of the rest of us have to deal with and also has vested interests on Why the other the side? Why is the government insulated from Because you've got people like Rishi Sunak who really wouldn't oh, notice he's not if it's my salary, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like his... This is a man who we discovered last year never used a credit card. What I'm trying to say is we've got a lot of people in government who live very different lives to the rest of us, you mm. know. You've got Nadim Zahari with his stables and mm. his heating his horses. And lots of them seem to have very different rarefied lives to us. And, he, and you wonder how much they understand what the rest of us are living with. Even if they didn't, you know, you've still got the problem of kind of political donations and the influence that some of these big companies who have a vested interest in these issues not getting solved have over the Conservative Party. And I'm thinking particularly of landlords and property developers and also some fossil fuel companies who, you know, have often quite clearly, and I've had conversations actually with MPs about how some of these interests have actually stood in the way of things like solving the housing crisis. I mean, I, I, I'm just on a basic level. I'm like, we're talking about borrowing more money than I could even calculate so we can retrofit everyone's houses. I don't, I don't think that's easy for any government to go and do, regardless, just because I have a big house, which, by the way, would cost me a fortune mm. to heat, you know, because it's relative. Yeah. You know, you've got a big fucking house. The bill is pretty fucking big yeah. right now. So I don't know if that's connected to the fact that it might be... Yeah, my frustration is actually the same thing, is that the, the, the short-termism that we live in, yeah. whatever government we put in, no one is... And I can't get my head around. We've discussed... I cannot get my head around why someone doesn't come forward and say... This is what I'm going to do. This is yeah. my 20-year plan to get Britain. And it's going to get worse, by the way. It's almost, you know, Thatcher got lucky with Falklands and I know you hate her, but it's mm. like, you know, at least it's like that you get the two terms and you've got to get lucky. Well, I mean, Thatcher was the last person to really fundamentally transform our economy. I think she did it in a really bad way, but, you know, it was a big shift, as yeah. you say. Yeah. And that is really the scale of the change that we need again right now. But nobody talks like that. Nobody mm. comes out and says, right, here's my 20-year plan. You're going to have to vote me in three times and it's going to get really shit for 10 years. A bit like, you know, what? it only happens like when South Korea goes through a war or mm. Germany goes through a war and they're starting from nothing. Do they get to rebuild properly? We're, you know, the problem with Britain winning the Second World War, oh, inverted commas and all these Goodness, things. Goodness, we quickly got to the Second World War. <laughs> no, I but, mean, you always no, end but, up there. But, but we, you know, the problem with being the victor is we didn't really ever rebuild anything. Well, actually, you know? I would kind of disagree with that because I was going to say the last time that we borrowed a substantial amount of money, like huge, huge sums of money, much the public debt to GDP ratio is much larger than it was, you know, even after the financial crisis was World War II. And what do we do after that? We didn't implement austerity. We had you know, the creation of the NHS. We had a massive program of social well, house well, building. that was we funded had... by the American Marshall Plan. I mean, we Well, a afford... little bit, but like ultimately over the long run, we've had this huge stock of debt. austerity was enormous after the Second World War no, for we had this. We had this huge stock of debt yeah. and we invested a huge amount in social house building, in the NHS, in the creation of public services, in education, in infrastructure. And because the economy was growing, partly because of that investment, we were able to recoup it over the long run. But surely this all comes down to, right, you're saying, why can't we look at things on a longer scale? 
And, you know, everybody always says, is does nobody think of the children thing? Yeah. You know, but it comes down to the fact that human beings are just a little bit too selfish, really. Like, we all think of, oh my God, it's going to be terrible for my, you know, I don't mm. have kids, but it'll be terrible for my nieces. It'll be terrible for the next generation. But I'm okay, so. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're encouraged to think of ourselves and human beings and our society more broadly as selfish. But actually, you know, that kind of thinking almost creates the problem itself. Because if you think, oh, everyone's selfish, I've just got to look after myself, you're less yeah. likely to kind of get involved in political campaigning or say, join a, a movement that's kind of pushing for change because you're like, oh, screw it. And also, I'm just little old me. Exactly. I can't what can make I a do? difference. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. No, exactly. I think if we actually changed the narrative there and thought, we broadly all want the same things. You know, we want to be able to live happy, healthy, fulfilled lives where we're not working all the time, where we can afford the basics, where our children are going to be better off than, than we are. And, you know, there are ways that we can work together to make that happen. Are you an economist at heart? Is that what you train as? I, I don't think of myself as an economist at heart. I, <laughs> I think of myself as in the vein of kind of lots of socialists as a critic of the whole idea of economics and of political economy. And obviously to do that, you have to be versed in a lot of the mainstream theory and stuff. But when I look at the way that most economists describe their profession, the way that they think about and talk about the economy... I see it as really alien because, and the biggest thing for me is that we have this idea of economics as completely divorced from politics, right? So you can construct a very nice model that's very, you know, mathematically elegant and you can predict people's behavior and you can say, right, and these assumptions mean that the corporate tax rate needs to be X percent without ever really considering the wider political variables that are going to feed into that. So, you know, people say, right, we need to have lower corporate tax rates because otherwise all the corporations will leave. And no one actually thinks about the political climate that, you know, determines whether or not that is the case, right? Like what other laws and regulations do we have surrounding corporation tax to determine whether or not that's true? So I see myself as kind of political economist, really, looking at the interaction between those two things. How does economics affect politics? How does politics affect economics? Uh, which I think gives you a much more holistic view. Yeah, I think it's a nice way of putting it. Do you ever heard of someone, Steve Keen? Yeah, I know Steve. He's yeah. a great guy, yeah. Yeah, because he, he came on and he just said, the governments have got to stop listening to economists. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got to start listening to climate change people. Do you yeah. agree with that philosophy? I definitely agree that the government needs to stop listening to economists. Um you know, yeah, I know a lot of economists and there are lots of great economists who, you know, I agree with, who are progressive and like argue for policies that I broadly agree with. But even then, I think this kind of narrow view of human beings that the economics profession pushes and this narrow view of society, which is that everything can be broken down into micro little transactions. Yeah, we have needs or Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you can, it's all about maximizing people's utilities subject yeah, to their bullshit. budget constraint. It's all, it's just silly and it doesn't capture the complexity of our lives. Obviously, it's not supposed to, but it also generates like policy suggestions and they say it's neutral, no policy suggestions come out of it, but they know that it does, that are just wrong and, and quite frankly, unsuitable for the world in which we live. So if we're trying to summarize, I mean, can you summarize your sort of the, the point that you're trying to make in terms of how 
governments should should change their approach? What is it that they should do differently? We should think more long-term, but I'd love that, but no one's doing it because they're voted mm. in every four years. And I, I mean, other than I always joked whether we could have a sort of, um, what is it when they all press the buzzer and the t- chairs turn around? It's like you yeah, almost the voice. Need, yeah, yeah, the I voice. Don't think I've always, seen that. <laughs> oh, I just wanted a government where you basically, you get in and until you get 80% of people hitting the buzzer, you're in. You, you know? know what? That is not far from what I think actually, because I think for me, like the biggest challenge that we face, even before all of these economic problems is actually democracy isn't really working. Mm. Um, Support for democracy is quite low. And actually it's, you know, democracy in a lot of parts of the world is retreating. This is after we were told, you know, end of the fall of the Berlin Wall, democracy and capitalism are here. That's it. Exactly. It's the end of history. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) totally. And now it seems like the legitimacy of our political economic system is on decline and people are blaming the democratic element of it without really seeing the economic side of it. And for me, the reason that democracy is failing is because we have this very significant levels of inequality that mean that there's a kind of governing class, largely largely speaking, who make a lot of the decisions, run a lot of the corporations, and you don't really understand, as you were saying, many of the problems that affect most people's lives. And most people feel, I would say, very powerless I think that's what Brexit was about. I think that's what I think that's what Trumpism is about. I think people see that they are being governed without really feeling like they they have a say in how that governing process is taking place. And it's not good enough just to say vote in different politicians every four years. Firstly, because you don't have a say over who you're voting for. But secondly, because there are all sorts of sources of uh, decision-making in government that are completely insulated from democratic accountability. Democracy, to me, you know, it's, 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 uh, there's some problems like there was a problem because of international travel and the way the world internationally works now that we're no longer dealing with the national system so a billionaire can live anywhere, he doesn't need to pay tax. And then you're like, oh, all of the money is in these thousand people they own, they have 70% of the money and they're the people who don't pay any tax. So there's just some, as a tax person, there's some basic problems Mm. now of the fluidity of movement of people. But I think we, you know, again, we talk ourselves into a bit of a corner on this issue because this has been the narrative for a really long time. And this was a narrative that, um, a lot of people on the right really worked to push. It was Which, that, what was the narrative? Sorry. That you can't tax the rich, you can't tax corporations because they'll just leave. And oh. actually, we do have, you know, especially as uh, an economy as, as large as we are, and also, you know, potentially working with other wealthy economies as we were supposed to do through the OECD, through the very nerdy base erosion and profit shifting, that sort of thing that never really came to anything. But no, we do have some power to be able to raise tax rates and also clamp down on tax avoidance and evasion and to, you know, at least monitor, if not regulate, the flows of uh, of capital, like, across our borders. We just choose not to. You know, we choose not to invest in tackling tax avoidance and evasion. No, I love to get into the detail because I want to solve some mm. of these problems because here is the thing. A lot of anger is created, I think, towards wealth. If, if So you're someone in the UK and you earn a million pounds a year and you've built a business and you employ 10, people fucking hate you. Mm. And yet you're putting half a million quid into the system. You probably privately educate your kids. You probably use private healthcare. Why are they the problem? Now, for me, why they're the problem is everyone's angry with the billionaires. You know, I've got to be clear on this. If someone is resident, they live in this country, they go on holidays, but this is their home and there's lots of very wealthy people who choose to do that because they love this country and that's where they want to be or that's where their family is. You pay 
a lot of tax. Internationally, you're at number 15 in the world of how much tax you pay. It's only Japan and places that well, pay Well, I mean, crazy. it really depends because we know that we lose huge amounts of money from tax avoidance. So obviously, if you look at it in terms of the statistics, and you would say if someone were to earn this much money and they were to pay all their tax, they would pay a high rate of tax. But we know that we lose tons of money it's quite to hard. tax avoidance I, I, and evasion every full, year. If you are a full-blown UK citizen, tax avoidance is quite hard, I have to say. You could you can be a fraudster. If that's what we're talking about, you I can be know. a fraudster. I don't know. I mean, it seems to happen. I don't think it is. It's We've quite easy recently to... had one member of the cabinet have to resign because of it. Oh, you'd have to tell me exactly what, what, what they did. I don't know what he did. He, again, it was international. That was international. If you're talking about... Yeah, it, it was... if, you've got, if you've got international, if you are a foreigner, much more complicated. But it's easy to, you know, if you're a Brit, set up a shell company in no, the it's Cayman not. Islands no, or whatever. No, it's bollocks. There's it's, actually... It's, it's laws against that. Movement of assets abroad is really but difficult to do. But you can create trusts and then, you, you know... You can't anymore. You could take... beneficial only, ownership and no, all that you sort can't. of stuff. The only trust you can do is every seven years you can put £325,000 into a trust for your kids and that trust you know that's that's it these days it is really hard in this country to to, to avoid tax whether the rate is high enough but 50% seems to be about the point internationally that people start saying fuck this for a game of soldiers so there seems to be a sort of limit and once you start going above that people think well I won't it will demotivate me I don't mind losing half okay so if you are a foreigner and you've entered the UK, if you've got, if you are able to move and live between different countries, completely different kettle of fish. But if I'm sitting someone opposite someone, it doesn't matter if they've got a hundred million. If they live all of their life in here, they're going to pay full tax. I am know? very annoyed that I don't have the statistics off the top of my head right now. I should have looked up before. I think the last time I checked, it was something like 27 billion a year lost in avoidance and evasion. But don't quote me on that. I think that was from Richard Murphy who's written a very good book about tax avoidance. But you know avoidance is not illegal. Well, exactly. That's the point I was making no, about... No, but avoidance is just arranging your affairs that you, you in a right way. And there aren't that many ways around it. I sit in front of people every day who are like, what can I do? There must be something. And I'm like, not much. I mean, you could do this and that might lower that. But we should be arranging the tax system in such a way that it's quite difficult to do that. Because, you know, if we're losing we that amount of I'm money... I'm sorry, we have. It's now illegal. It's now basically... Avoidance is... There are a whole set of rules. They are incredibly complicated. There are a million... Yeah. Pages of tax law. We have probably the most complicated and some of the most aggressive tax law in the world. It's incredibly well thought out. It's okay. Avoid. We can't come in a world where we say avoidance is illegal. Evasion is illegal. Well, I mean, we know that, but we can rearrange the tax system such that avoidance doesn't happen as much or doesn't happen in such an inefficient way. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle. If you're a full UK person, there's so few ways you can hide. I mean, there are really few ways. Dividend, so you could pay 38.1% rather than 45% if you arrange your stuff through a company, but has all these other impacts that mean your tax goes up. So I, you know, I just, the reason I stand up for this argument is because I think there is a narrative around avoidance that these people are all bad people. Avoidance is literally getting tax advice, which you should get. And that's a very big industry. Like, you know, as you, as you know, because yeah, but, but we've got a million pages. It's pays. worth it. Yeah, but yeah, even how you're putting that is cynical. You're putting it in a way of, oh, it's wrong to get tax advice. Fucking I'm good. not saying it's wrong to no, get tax advice. No, but how you're selling like, it, it's got this taste of like, oh, it's wrong. I'm not speak. saying, I would never, I find it so boring when people speak about big political issues in terms of like individual responsibility. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, we know that people will make the system work for them. The question is, how do we design the system so that in trying to make the system work for them, we actually make it, it work works for everyone. It for more people. Yeah. Like, it's never going to work for everyone, but we need a system that works for more of the population as a whole. Uh, and this may be a difference, you're right, between, let's say, a middle-class person with, you know, a million-pound home and a good job and a billionaire. And I think yeah. we often forget, as you say, the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. A great stat that I like to, to tell people is, 
it would take you 12 days to count the numbers to a million. To count the numbers to a billion would take you 32 years. Wow. That's the difference of the scale that's between a million good, and a billion. That's the metric. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people with astonishing amounts of money, money that should be taxed, who are, you know, avoiding tax in Panama and the Cayman Islands. A lot of actually, a lot of places that are British overseas territories or crown dependencies or whatever. Oh yeah, we definitely, we definitely have a pass to play, but you've got to understand those rules. Those all Every time you see that, it's because there was an ability to do it historically. I mean, look, you definitely, it's definitely too complicated tax. I mean, on enforcement, I, you know, the revenue are just like on it. I mean, I mean, they're writing letters to people left, right, and center. They use psychologists. They, I mean, it's crazy what the some of the it shit they get up to. It is interesting because I know what you mean, like in the sense that it's quite easy to go after someone who. I don't know, has a like got a small business and maybe is arranging their tax affairs in such a way. But it, like the people who who we actually want to go after, it is. It seems like they're either less aggressive or they just don't know. Or maybe these guys are so lawyered up that it just becomes so difficult for to even engage with HMRC. Well, but 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 we're back to your point that democracy is a bit fucked right yeah. now, and people like China are laughing at us, and rightly so because they've got a hundred, two hundred year plan, and they're off on it. And I mean, at least the Japanese have a longer term plan. I think they seem to run their society in a much sort of longer term. And but you know, ultimately, we're sitting here with our like three year plan, wondering why we're we going to lose the game. We don't even have a three year plan. Yeah, I yeah. mean, what well, we got a year. plan plan at the moment, the current electoral cycle, then we've got a two-year plan. Was yours, was your proposal go back to the 16th century and the divine right of kings and well, the <laughs> democracy? You, you, you know, it's back to the thing of the benevolent dictator might be, you know, it's like I was reading about Chairman Mao. I've never really read oh, it God. because, but I got... <laughs> oh my God! No, no, I'm not advocating him. I mean, the guy <laughs> killed millions and millions of people, but it's fascinating reading the legacy. I was reading Stalin the other yeah. day and, you know, that guy had some wait, reasonable wait, 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 wait. things to say. Let me make say. my point because he's come from a rest in history podcast because they started <laughs> okay. talking about yeah, the like cultural revolution. That's my favourite podcast. Anyway, so I read the Wikipedia and I'm like, I can't get my head around this guy. And you go to the legacy of Chairman Mao and it's incredibly divided, but he was amazing for women. He he raised the light. He did all these incredible things for their society, but he did but all these But have you heard their podcast things. on the Cultural Revolution? That's oh my the one. fucking That's God. That's the one I just listened yeah. to. That's scary. But no, I mean, you're right. Like when you have this form of basically centralized planning that they had in the USSR, in China to an extent and other places, there were a lot of achievements around you know, housing and women's well, rights. I'd say and currently stuff. China is advancing in an yeah, impressive exactly. rate. Yeah, exactly. But there were also big drawbacks. A to that lot system. of people had to die to make it work. And also, it's kind of unfeasible, really, I think, to suggest moving back to that level of centralization and bureaucratization in the kind of complex modern society that we live in today. Like, I really think that the, the ideas that we have around democracy, which are that it's slow, nothing gets done, it gets taken over by vested interests. I think they're they're wrong and they're outdated because there are ways that you can organize a society to make it more democratic that don't all just hinge on electoral politics. It's things like, you know, worker engagement in the organizations in which they work for. It's things like, you know, community engagement. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on at the moment at like just local Explain council that level. Explain a bit more. What do you what do you think would so, would help? So we're talking about Yeah, one thing that I really think everyone should look into at the moment is something called the Preston model and this is based on the idea of community wealth building. And this would have actually been a really interesting way to respond to some of these questions around, you know, places that have been in inverted commas left behind. The idea is that there are anchor institutions in an area like the council, the NHS, uh, universities, that they can't move. They have a certain procurement budget. Um, and the way that they spend that budget can either make or break that community. They can outsource everything to capita and all the money gets sucked out and goes to shareholders in London. Or they can say, we're going to procure these services from a cooperative or from a local business and, you know, use that collective power and that spatial 
planning basically these organizations have to try and boost the community they did this in preston it was an amazing success the labor council there who's run by matthew brown he's written a book about it has just you know come on heaps and bounds from this very deprived area to actually really um you know maintaining a lot of value in the community they're thinking about doing things like again setting up their own cooperatives setting up local local development banks that sort of thing and they're engaging people in that process the whole way through and as a result They've done really well in elections. They've got really high approval ratings. Like, this is something, you know, arguably really simple. It sounds good. And I mean, I wonder who the leaders were in Preston. They clearly weren't the Slough Council. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, that's the thing. Local makes sense, again, mm. as long as you've got good people running the business. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What do you think is bullshit in business or in your industry and why? So I think in general, my answer to this question, and this might be controversial, there's this whole idea of kind of like stakeholder capitalism, right? Which is that shareholder capitalism is very short-termist, which is true. You know, we had the the shareholder value revolution and it all becomes about maximizing um, maximizing shareholder value over the very short term and profits distributed are a, a good measure of the value that's created by a company. So we need to move to this idea of stakeholder capitalism, which is basically where the shareholders of a business get to act in the interests of all of the stakeholders that are affected by that business. And the idea is that this is supposed to be kind of voluntary. So the shareholders are supposed to say, well, we have a broad interest in society working, so we're going to sacrifice some of our short-term profits in order to make, you know, the world better over the long term. Fnall, fnall. Exactly. And the most, you know, the maddest version of this is, uh, I've heard, is that the big asset management companies, so like BlackRock, for example, which own stakes in all of the, the biggest companies, will start suddenly realizing that because they own stakes in all of the economy, that it's in their interests that climate change doesn't get too bad and that economic growth is good and that there isn't too much inequality. So they're going to start pressuring, you know, these companies to, you know, be better on the climate or pay their employees more or whatever. This is something that people have actively theorized and suggested will happen. And of course, that is not what's happened. You know, Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock, says, oh, we're going to do lots of stuff on climate breakdown, but then whenever a vote comes up on these issues, if it impacts short-term profitability, they're not going to do that. And, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their people who are invested in that company. So this is not going to work on that basis. It's not going to work because the incentives don't align. I like the idea of companies being more responsible. I just don't think it's going to happen from this voluntary shift that suddenly everyone realizes, oh, actually, we don't care about profits that much. So I think that's a bit of bullshit that people like to peddle. It's a really curious one. I think you have to sort of separate big, big business. I mean, we, we've joked before, but, you know, there's always this line about, oh, well, you know, everyone does it for the shareholders. Most companies I know couldn't give two fucks about their shareholders. <laughs> yes, they don't even, you know, they're like, yeah, what, whatever, you know. They and are shareholders. They, you know, so. do they have a duty to make profits? Like, look, I'm trying to make money here. I want my salary to continue. You know, I'm hoping to get a dividend one day. But the stakeholder thing is coming, but it's this hugely complicated mechanism that needs da, 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 accountants and auditors and everyone and it's and regulation and the, and the, I would it's argue coming, it's coming yeah. or new audit regulations coming but yeah it would take a while I do think people are thinking more like stakeholders and again you, you think of every company I deal with in London it's like you know it's rare that I meet I meet one now who doesn't give a crap if they can give a crap yeah but I mean this is if the thing if they're struggling isn't it? which a lot of them are and giving a crap's difficult. It's hard Just as much yeah. as for an individual as a business. I think this is really interesting, actually, because kind of this whole idea of stakeholder capitalism tends to come alongside 
greater market concentration. If you are a big market dominating monopoly or oligopoly, you can afford to be like, oh, well, you know, we'll give a bit here. We'll, you know, do something nice there. We'll invest in this particular scheme or whatever. Whereas if you're in a very competitive industry where, you know, costs are are tight, margins are tight, then um, it's going to be much more difficult for you. So actually, it's not necessarily a good thing that we have this, these really now quite high in some sectors levels of market concentration that give some firms the flexibility to be able to say, I'm going to do X or Y or Z. It's, it, it, and part of our problem is what you really want them to do with these big, you know, like the companies who don't deserve the money, like all the energy companies going, well, oh, this is rather good, yeah. you know? And, and, and so we get annoyed about that. So you're like, well, tax them more. Well, the problem is, is people don't really respect the taxation is being used that well. You know, so companies would say, well, we'll, you, we'll invest the money, we'll do better. But they haven't. You would they love, just dished you would it all out to say, Yeah, exactly. Well, you'd love to say to them, give them the ethical problem of saying, we're going to put a 20% charitable tax on you and it's going to go to these charities. Because much harder for them to sit as shareholders and say, well, I just think it's outrageous, you know, but then you get into what are the charities doing? And I, well, I mean, I just li- give I it li- to the I NHS. Like your, well, I like your, well, maybe, but I like your community idea that maybe a company could have a responsibility to its community and say, okay, you're super rich. You've got offices in these three counties. Each, you've got to have to now make a donation to that county of 20% of your profits. And they can't get upset about it. And then all these great things happen in their community. But with that mechanism, those sorts of mechanisms, they are very socialist, I guess. Or they they're are, very, yeah. They're very like coming in. No, but I'm I'm into that shit. I think a lot of people would be into that shit. It's how, it's how you do it and that it's got to be proportional fair. And that's the problem because then you get down to the mathematics. But you, it would seem you could just say, you know, yeah, if you've made mega profits and all you do is really get oil out the ground, then fuck yeah, you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rentier industry. These well, not fuck you, value. not fuck you. Well done you. And we're going to give some of it to charity. Okay, you know that's what we're gonna do. You know, and and don't get upset about it, please. You know. Okay, so Grace, this is the five second rule. This okay, is where we're gonna ask we're gonna you chop to... it to three seconds, given we okay, take too long. Okay, we've already. <laughs> <laughs> this always happens to me, by the way. I always go on for so yeah, long. I'm sorry. Though. We're gonna ask you a list of questions to get to know you a little better, cool. and you've got three seconds, five seconds. Okay, to answer each question. Okay, DQ the music. What was your first job? Waitress in a pub. I was paid £4.25 an hour. Oh, okay. Mm. What was your worst job? Um, I worked at the Build-A-Bear workshop. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I had to dress up in as a bear and go outside and greet the kids. You kind of need a mirror to enjoy that all day. Yeah, Otherwise, it was very you're in hot. a sweaty It was really suit. hot, yeah. My brother was the killer whale at uh, Windsor Safari Park. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to squeeze the children really tight with his flippers because he was so hot and angry. Oh, my God. <laughs> Favourite subject at school? History. Mm. Special skill? Oh, God. Um, I don't know, guitar, singing? like that. Oh, I do do that, yeah, I suppose. That's nice. a thing. Well, we'll be making music after this. You Great. Get your guitar out. Well, we've got one somewhere. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, initially a pop star, then a politician. <laughs> I have changed entirely. I am... I, I, they're I'm basically fan- the same they're, thing. They're, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? Just happy, I think. Everyone says this. I know. But my parents really meant it. They were like, my mum was always like, my mother, because she was the first family person in her family to go to university, went to Cambridge, and her dad really wanted her to be the first female prime minister. And she was like, I live with the weight of that my whole life. I just want you to be happy. I have no expectations for you, so. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, we'll come back to it. Yeah. What was your go-to karaoke song? 
Oh, God. Oh, Oasis, Champagne oh, Supernova. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, which one that was, was the big one at university? That one, that's... Um, um, you will find. Yeah, exactly. Oh, beneath us, something or other. Oh, look at that. Yeah. He's got a nice little singing voice. Uh, fuck off. Uh, <laughs> office dogs. Where is he? Uh, he's down there. Business or bullshit? I don't work in an office, but I mean, it sounds like that would be a nice thing to have in an office. I always hated working in an office. I mean, it was not really for me. I was a bit too much of a free spirit, but... If you're going to be in an office, have something to lighten the mood, definitely. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're a pain in the arse. I can imagine. Yeah, sorry. Where is he? He's just down here being very good as usual. <laughs> as sometimes. Uh, have you ever been fired? Surprisingly, no. I really feel like I've been expelled from school several times. Really? You were expelled? I've never been fired. Yeah, quite a lot. I identify with when you were talking about how British people are rebellious. I personally think that for the reason that I'm rebellious, that's why I'm left wing. But that's a story for another day. No, no, we need to know about expulsion. I've only, <laughs> Hang on, I've let's only, just I've do the last one. Suspended. What's your vice? Oh, God. Probably surfing. No, <laughs> cool. Wow. That's very cool. You go down to Cornwall then. Total Cornwall. Yeah, well, I've been doing this now for a long time on my, on my holidays, and it's expensive and time consuming and just a whole life consuming so. I think we have good surf in the UK though actually yeah, no, it's, it's cold darling, but we have good yeah, surf yeah yeah no definitely um, it just depends when it comes in Um, the, the happy one I mean everyone says it but I just have to bring up my which is it's thanks to my dad his point when he is that happiness is a transient emotion you yeah, know, and like I agree. Sad. And yeah. so his was like, don't you want to progress? He says, at times you're going to feel sad. At times you're going to feel happy. Sometimes you're frustrated, sexy, whatever the fuck. But you want to progress. So surely, you know, everyone, everyone, almost everyone says my parents wanted to be too happy. And I wonder if that's really true or whether they just wanted you to build a good life. Yeah. Or maybe it's I want you to be content because you Content's can be content. Content's a better word. Yeah. Better word. I think it might be a generational thing to be honest, because uh, like my parents' generation, which would have been like on the cusp of Gen X and what would it have been the cusp of Boomers and Gen X, would have been raised by what nineteen sixty five something. Yeah, fifty nine. They were both it's, born. No. In. Yeah. So I think they absorbed all this stuff from their parents, which were like, you have to be successful. You have to, you know, as I said, my granddad was this communist who was still like, you as my daughter, you got to Cambridge, you're going to be the first, you know, female prime minister. And it made them really unhappy because they were constantly pushing, you know, through the 80s, through this time where it was all about individualism and entrepreneurship to be successful. The 80s were hell. Yeah. And then they realized, oh, actually, you know, I have all this stuff and I'm not happy. And I think they then said to us, don't just make your whole life about you know, achieving and success and all that sort of stuff. Like, think about what you actually want to do. So when I said, right, I'm taking this bit, a bit of a break from my career to go traveling for eight months at the age of 29, my mom was like, great, I'm so supportive. I've come back and I'm like, I'm going to have to stay with you for a while because I spent all of my money. She's like, I don't care. I'm so proud of you. It's great that you've done that. You know, you don't want to be stuck in 10 years time in a job that you don't like, whatever. I think that's kind of what it means, really. It's about chasing what makes you what makes you yeah, content yeah, rather nice. than just success. My dad said that. I tried to move home for three months when I was doing my house up. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, I don't, I don't really want you here. I mean, I love you terribly. I was so shocked. I was like, what? All right. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I might end up saying that to my son one day. And then expulsion. What did you get expelled for? I was expelled... Um, Twice, three... it sounded like. Oh, no, sorry. I was asked to leave one school. This was an all-girls school I went to in years seven and eight. And that was because I had... Seven and eight is like 12. 12 13, yeah. yeah. I'd climbed on the roof and started smoking. 
Um, so that cigarettes. was why I got suspended for. Yeah, just cigarettes at that time. And then they were like, you're disruptive. So I later found out I have ADHD. So I was very disruptive all the time. But I was quite smart. So I'd finish all my work and then distract everyone else. Eventually they were like, you have to leave because you're a nightmare. Went to then boarding school for three years. I got suspended three times. So I actually only got expelled twice, if you count that. Suspended three times at that school for various different infractions. Then they said, you've got to leave, but you can sit your GCSEs. And I was like, right, well, this is a great excuse to have a, a big blowout party, brought in loads of booze, like messed everything up. And then they were like, right, okay, you're out properly now. Did still get to sit my GCSEs. I just wasn't allowed back on the school premises. And then I went to sixth form college for two years and I was only suspended once. So uh, you've got uh, 30 seconds to pitch anything you'd like. Um, follow me on Twitter at Grace Blakely. Blakely has two E's. Follow me on Instagram, same thing. And yeah, look out for news about my book, Vulture Capitalism, which is coming out next year. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dee. Thank you, Romeo, Pippa. God, wonderful guest, Grace. And we'll be back with BWB Extra on Thursday. Until then, it's ciao. 